There's nothing going on with Russia and Ukraine right now that isn't about urban. I don't see anything on the modern battlefield that is a revolution in military affairs that's fundamentally changed the character of warfare. Ukrainians don't have to defeat any military. They don't have to defeat the enemy's military power. In this situation, not losing is winning. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today we bring you a special episode with Major Retired John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Madison Policy Forum. We'll be talking with John about the war in Ukraine, the urban warfare strategies employed by both the Russian and Ukrainian militaries, the changing character of warfare, and what all this means for conflict in the future. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. John, could you tell our audience who you are and how did you end up covering Russia-Ukraine and everything that's going on with dense urban warfare? So my name is John Spencer. I'm the chair of urban warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum. Retired Army major. I've been studying urban warfare academically for almost a decade. Uh, While I was active duty, I I served even with the chief of staff of the Army Strategic Studies Group, looking at megacities and how the Army is prepared for that. Over the years, working on urban, traveling to battle zones, meeting with units from across the world and talking to them about preparing for war. Unfortunately, I now am a high commodity because there's nothing going on with Russia and Ukraine right now that isn't about urban. It's either getting past the urban space to get to the objective or the strategic objective, in this case, in an invasion, is the capital, the seat of the political power, Kiev. So at this moment in time, that's how I got involved in this is because I've been doing it for a long time. And like I've been telling everybody, which is very context driven based on what the strategic objective is of both sides. There's nothing going on in my mind in Russia, in Ukraine that is not urban. John, thanks for being here. Let's let's jump right into it then and, and talk about this uh, this conflict out there. What are your thoughts on the capabilities that are being used by each nation um, broadly and specifically some of the weapon systems that are out there? Sure. So. I mean, broadly, depending on you know, if you want to talk about the phase that it is today as we're talking or the phase it started with, I mean, it started with something very similar to what other country invasions have entailed. Large marshalling of forces preparing to cross the line of departure, guessing on when that would be. It happens. A very, a very strong attempt to open the campaign like any invasion with the air dominance attempt. So strategic bombing of every air defense system in the Ukrainian military, which they had great systems as early as possible. This all started with strikes and just like whether it was the Iraq invasion in 2003, Desert Storm, and you got to take out those air defense systems um, and you have to try to get air superiority. Systems. So that's, that's what day one started. Um, they failed in that actually. They wanted a shock and all the Russians. They wanted a shock and all campaign. Um, so they started pushing light forces in really rapidly to seize critical nodes that we know in the military you need um, in order to project more forces rapidly. So you saw lots of fights happening for airfields with dismounted forces that they literally helicoptered in, which is really um, audacious plan. 
um, likely Russian generals in their campaign plan and their best military advice to political leaders was that they could pull this off with low cost rapidly and overwhelm with military power, which you know, if you historic recent history might have worked had they not faced the resistance of the Ukrainian military that they did. So immediately when the, the, that, those forward projection, forward projection, light infantry, paratroopers, more of the elite were, were sent in, that they weren't able to, to hold what they, what they tried to take. And they, the Russians weren't able then to rapidly push more stuff in through those APODs, SPODs, things like that. Now, same thing on the coast, you know, trying to take the coast and, and to rapidly marshal. Um, right after that, we saw Russia forward elements, which is Russian doctrine, um, pushing in um, reconnaissance assets, things like that. Surprisingly, arguably not the most trained element to do that. Uh, they, there's, they ended up getting kind of some got lost, some got heavily made heavy contact, things like that. But, you know, the more typical stuff you'd see in a campaign. And then you start to see slowly pushing in. Also, they, they used, you know, they have heavy combined arms and they're pushing them. But they've also tried to push in through five different uh, avenues of approach, which seems odd where you might have a main effort on one approach, um, faint on another. Uh, they were literally trying to attack all on one end, although clearly it became clear that the decisive operation, the majority of the combat power was coming out of Belarus from the north and the south, because it's the shortest distance to Kiev, which is the strategic capital. Um, so the, the Ukrainians are were basically fighting on all fronts, uh, using the whole host of capabilities, especially contesting the air, taking down airplanes, taking down helicopters, um, using the systems that were, they've been recently, you know, since really 2016-ish, you know, the Javelins, the, the Stingers, those systems are, really are playing in, but don't let the, anybody convince you that it wasn't the whole suite of combined arms, that they're holding terrain in the, you know, along the Eastern Corridor, they're fighting it out, uh, they're there's ambushes happening on, on, on the, the main avenues approach. So the other factor that kind of plays in early and clearly is that the Russian military in this attempt to do kind of this Iraq invasion, um, they had to stick to a few main roads because of the mud that's to the left and right of them. So that's preventing them from dispersing this element, um, getting off the roads to spread out to be less targetable, since, especially since they couldn't maintain air superiority. So I'm curious about what you know, weapon systems have featured so prominently. So we're seeing a lot, obviously, right now um, in the news about the use of ATGMs, whether it's javelins and laws um, and, and some of the manpad systems. You know, I'm curious as to what you see as what's been prominent and um, what kind of struggles have, say, the Russians uh, seen. Uh, you talked about their combined arms armies um, with trying to use armored vehicles, tanks and uh, IFEs in those dense urban areas. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, hard to tell at this point, and we're going to have to get in there and study this in real detail. I mean, from the opening source intelligence that, I mean, I'm just watching Twitter, which is a, an interesting second question is um, kind of like the second Nagorno-Karabakh where we're following this war by, not by battle, but by engagement and being able to geolocate to prove an engagement there all of that. Um, yeah, of course, what we're seeing is the, the lethality of the ATGMs, especially the Javelin and the in-laws that they got. Um, but they also have the Skuka. They have a, a Ukrainian-developed um, ATGM that they produce in mass in the last two or three years. Um, unknown, I can't tell you, like, 
exactly that was destroyed by a javelin. Clearly, these dismounted ATGM systems are being a prominent aspect, especially from the fact that you're not seeing Russia deploy some of the advanced systems that we might have believed that they they, they would employ. Um, you see, they were trading in the beginning. They were trading speed for joint combined arms. Really, they were they're really rushing. You see them rushing in in convoys, and and to be fair, Ukrainians were letting them. Um, just convoys pass in the videos of just convoys of BDRMs and tanks driving. One of the problems is that the ones that we're seeing drive real fast through stuff. Good luck because it's, you know, terrain matters. And these are ground-based systems that are moving from the, this is the second largest country in, in Europe. It, it takes like 15 hours or something to get from that Eastern border to over on the Western side where they need to get. Yes. We see all the mechanized, but we also see it's, you know, it's not, deploying into combat formation is still like in convoy formation, trying to get to where it's been told to go. We, we know, which is not abnormal that the Russian, these Russian forces were told that they're in a training exercise, weren't told that they were penetrating, which actually, to be clear, is historically relevant in the, in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, the, the Egyptian military who was stationed along the Suez Canal did not know the next morning that they would be invading Israel. Um, it, it does, it, it's, it's a, it's an OPSEC thing. It's a, there's many reasons for it, but yeah. So the BDRMs, the T-72s, all the things that we know you need to take, especially urban train, to take Kiev um, is being rushed in every direction. But they also, to be frank, the forces that we're seeing getting kind of eliminated and, and really beat up by those dismounted systems, especially are the forces they need to take important objectives along, right? So we see there's, there's important cities in the north, like Kharkiv um, was or is, depending on when this airs, or uh, Harrison in the south, Odessa in the south. You see, like I said, for some odd reason, like five advances trying to take these few key cities that are critical to passing forces forward to be a part of the the, the actual big take the capital down attack. Uh, th- yes, yeah, so that's most of the, the big systems are th- these heavy mechanized formations you need. You don't see the light infantry that much right now. Um, because again, they're not deploying out into combat formations yet. You see a lot in, in especially in, in Kiev, you saw, you see, you still see a lot of light infantry, um, advanced forces trying to um, seize airports or trying to find a, a breach into the city early and um, things like that. You know, these, you know, they're not cavalry, but these advanced formations, it, 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 this is really force projection early on. And you've been studying conflict and especially dense urban conflict for years, as you noted. What surprised you in this conflict so far? When is it when it comes to urban warfare, but also just regarding warfare overall? Yeah, the surprise one, um, like I'm not a Russian military expert but by far. You know, I do urban combat. Um, I'm surprised at the ineptness of the Russian military in attempting to take urban. Um, you don't do it the way they've done it up to this point. That's not how you see something like that or any of these actually you um it, you don't do it with light forces rapidly deployed on top of stuff um that's just not going to to work so i'm actually surprised in the ineptness um in the russian military and i i will will say you know, we can say they had an intelligence failure i am extremely surprised by the ukrainians military paramilitary and civilian resistance had they not resisted yes Actually, the Russian, despite mistakes, right? The enemy tells you what your mistakes are. 
not necessarily you know outside observers. The enemy will tell you where you made your mistakes and your plan. So the enemy is telling Russia you made a mistake in believing you could quickly take these objectives, any of them, and urban areas with a light, fast presence. Um, so in urban warfare, that isn't a surprise that the plan of attack was rapid, shock and all, you know, strikes and then rapid maneuver. Um, the surprise is the amount of resistance that Ukrainian was able to put up initially just to hold off that first part of the plan. Because had any of that first part of the plan worked, they wouldn't be here today, to be honest. They wouldn't be here a week later. So I'm really surprised at that. There are kind of two schools of thought when it comes to dense urban warfare, and especially the, the future of dense urban warfare. Um, there are those that think that urban warfare is something that we can just bypass and go around and we won't have to fight in these cities. But that's clearly what's not happening in Ukraine right now. So what are your thoughts on that issue? One, I think that's hogwash. Show me some campaign in recent history where, where the objective is not urban. Granted, you can avoid it in some parts of the world, like Iraq, we could avoid urban areas getting to our urban area. The objective was still the urban area. Uh, so it's, a, it's all hogwash, in my opinion, um, because of recent history. Um, the, the, as Anthony Beaver, the, the, the premier urban scholar on Stalingrad and World War II battles says, the age of combined arms maneuver on the open plain is over. Nobody has the size of militaries necessary to wage war against another military in the open. The character of warfare has changed. If you're dumb enough to stand in the open against the U.S. coalition, that's a, a highway from hell all over and over and over again. Uh, the age of that is over. It's about urban because we're so small. That is the objective. I'm not going to defeat your military, and that's going to lead to my outcome. All you know, military theorists just, just sit around the table arguing this um, enemy-based approach for strain bros. You're not getting anywhere in the world today without needing to secure urban terrain to at least pass through it. Even in our, in our history of a major campaign against Baghdad, lightly defended urban terrain all around, uh, we paid a price when we did extend our lines of control and bypass cities to where they could come out and hit those. And we had to adjust in order to, to prevent that. So yeah, Ukraine, of course, is going to prove me right in this scenario, but context always matters. I got it. This is not World War II. Ukrainian military is not backed by, you know, they're having to fight this out there alone. They, they need, there's certain systems they don't have that, you know, we or other, especially a NATO, a joint combined arms, NATO force would have. But it's just hogwash on the modern battlefield that you're going to avoid and bypass all cities. And you're not going to have to, you're not going to have to at least secure uh, lines of communications through urban or find me a recent battle where the urban wasn't the objective. It is the strategic objective. Now, yes, there is history. And I always get Napoleon thrown in my face. Napoleon made it to Moscow, didn't win. Got it. But I'm telling you, for my years and years of analysis, I don't see anything in any scenario where Urban isn't a, a strategic objective or decisive objective because I also get an argument about, okay, avoid and bypass, but okay, what's the decisive operation that's going to win the war? Well, second Nagorno-Karabakh war, Susha, the city of Susha was the decisive battle. As in, I mean, it ended the war. It wasn't the last battle of the war that just happened to exhaust the enemy of its capabilities like Berlin was for World War II. 
Um, it was the strategic objective from day one of the war. Just like Russia's strategic objective of day one is to take Kiev and put in a new political objective. All war is politics. In these, this war, the objective is to put in a new political regime that is conducive to Russia. As long as the Ukrainian president survives and the best strategy is to survive inside the urban terrain, they can't achieve their strategic objective. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And as you said, we've we've seen lots of recent evidence of that. Um, and it's not just about territory. Uh, it's it's context and it matters to the strategic and decisive objectives. So, you know, kind of segueing, no two conflicts are really the same, even even when they're in the same geographic location, as we saw from first and second Nagorno-Karabakh wars. And there's an assumption that any conflict the U.S. gets into with any of our adversaries is likely going to have a different character than what we're seeing right now, partially because of what you said of a NATO uh, joint combined arms uh, uh, units that would be available, uh, just just the way that we're shaped as compared to the Ukrainians. Um, so we're likely to have overmatch in some areas. Uh, we might have parity and a lot of other warfighting functions and, and technologies. But with all that being said, and bearing in mind, like you said, this is still ongoing, what are some lessons that the U.S. military just really crucially needs to learn from this conflict? Man, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. So John Spencer's opinion of that and, and i know this might not correspond with a lot of guests on your show um, i don't see anything on the modern battlefield that is an rma a revolution of military affairs that's fundamentally changed the character of warfare i actually see consistent stuff uh that combined arms maneuver is critical and by combined arms i mean none of this is urban fighting it's not a light infantry fight it's not a heavy force fight it's a combined joint fight. And I, don't, and I don't think anything we're seeing today, I think what we're seeing today actually proves that um, in all the systems that we we have resonant in our uh, formations are critical. There's some systems that we may have thought weren't as critical that we're, we're, we're continuing to see that. No, no, that artillery is still king of the battle in, in seizing and hold what the enemy um, values, which is its terrain and its population. Combined arms maneuver, still critical. Even in the urban terrain, it's again, um, some of the fundamental warfighting capabilities are still critical. And I think, yes, there are modern technologies that are enablers in that. If you don't have an air defense system on the modern battlefield that can deal with fast moving, slow moving, small, big air threats, then you're dead on the modern battlefield. I don't think that eliminates or requires, I don't think that's an RMA. I'm not the kind of guy that will say nothing's changed in war. Uh, I, I will say those things are critical. Um, I, I, I don't overemphasize them like different people do on that. It's, um, but all, all the, the, what we've seen, let's say the last five, 10 years, even with the most advanced systems being employed on the battlefield, they're all enablers of warfighting functions that we know are important. Yes. It reminds us that command and control needs to be distributed. It, it reminds us that you can't have, big giant EW admitting headquarters on the modern battlefield or you will get struck. Um, it, it, the, what we're seeing today in Ukraine, what we saw in our Garner Karabakh are reminding us about what we used to know, um, but maybe we've forgotten and, and there have to be adjustments on capabilities of there's some things like, Oh, you got to bring back things that we that like, like air defense and, and prioritize it. Um, 
from the ground level and not just assume that it, it'll be there. And there are some, you know, stuff that has to be pushed lower, um, like ISR capabilities because of this. I think ISR capabilities, even from my own experiences in combat in 2008, say, uh, are needed today on the mountain battlefield much more than they were in the past on the ability to sense forward and, and, and these things. Nothing new to you or your listeners. Um, once this war is over, I don't see anything yet outside of you have to have it all. And I do. Well, the one thing that I will say that I have seen in my studies, even if I remove myself from the urban scholarship and studies, is that the defense is as critical as the offense. Even if your objective is offensively based, you have to be able to do both at the same time. And the transitions are critical. Nothing new to anybody that is in like our professional military education system. I think I do think as a force and what's going to come out of the Ukraine battle. And what I have been talking about actually, and especially recently, is how critical and underemphasized the defense is in war. Now, the urban defense to me is more important. Now, the argument is, you know, philosophically, Clausewitz has said that the defense is the strongest form of war for a long time. Uh, and not to, to use the, the, the big man's name, but that's a fact. And yes, politically, it is a weaker strategy. You're like, oh, that's fine and dandy, but you have to put that into the context of the war and the strategic objectives and all that. It doesn't take away from, as in a warfighter, how critical it is to be able to transition rapidly into the defense for all the reasons in our doctrine. It says, why do we go into defense? But it has to be trained more. It has to be thought through more like a large scale combat operation in Eastern Europe and having to slow down an aggressor just to, to facilitate other operations or other political requirements. John, those are great points. Um, um, I, I want to talk about something you did recently. One of the most interesting things to note about your involvement when it comes to information on dense urban warfare and getting it to Ukrainians is is how you wrote a manual on dense urban warfare and got it over to Ukraine and it was widely proliferated within 48 hours of the conflict unfolding. Can you kind of walk us through how that happened? What kind of implications that has for the future of learning and how we pass lessons and insights onto an active battlefield? Yeah, so that's a great question with, with a lot of minefields in it. So what I did as a citizen who has studied urban warfare for decades uh, and, and have my own personal scar tissue and experiences, um, I observed this through social media, the call for Ukrainians, civilians to be added to the military force structure, basically. I witnessed that the handing out of tens of thousands of AK-47s and civilian populations being told to resist. One, I, I highly think that's not a good approach because it immediately turns your civilian population into a combatant and it can be targeted by everything and anything that the, a, a military force. One, you're arming completely untrained individuals who will probably hurt themselves with the tool that you just gave them. Given all that, based on my research and with, with zero affiliation in what I do, I I went to Twitter, not knowing what it would do and wrote a series. I didn't write a manual. That'd be pretty cool. I, I, would, I wouldn't mind dusting off the terrible mini manual for the urban gorilla. That's very, it was very popular and it's, it's junk. There's nothing in it. Um, but I, I put out a, a, a series of tweets on the most basic stuff that a civilian in any part of the world 
who is asked to resist could do to help in defending their nation and in, in their side. So, you know, for instance, when you tell civilians to just go out and resist and the, other, the only other guidance they've been given is to make Molotov cocktails, that's not enough to help. Um, so I put out stuff that like, if, if I was somewhere in the world, I would say, and this is the, what you, you saw to include, I started making diagrams of put barricades in the roads. It could be viewed as participating in, in but is it something safe that somebody can do long before the enemy gets there is you don't understand. This is all about terrain, terrain denial and defense in depth means you have to put things to slow the forces down. But that was the other reason I just saw these videos of these cars just racing through these towns. I'm like, dude, like s- slow them down in some way. You can just go park your car in the street and that will have, that will help. So I, I put out these series of tweets of like little things that could help. And actually, you know, and even as a soldier, the combat is, you know, extreme violence capitulated with its hours and hours of boredom. And in the boredom, that's when stuff sets in. So then there was a few tips that I said, like, look, this is going to get ugly in urban combat. You can't walk around in groups with the AK-47s that you just got. Um, so I put out information like, Look, if you can be seen from the sky, you can be attacked. Um, so if I was some in some part of the world, I would recommend you stop doing that because the, the bullets, and unfortunately, by the time with the podcast, we're now seeing that the advanced artillery rocket, Tomahawk, MLRS, thermobaric are falling on cities, likely because military targets, as in someone carrying a weapon, were identified then, oh, that, that's, a, that's, that's now classified as a military target. Um, so I put out tweets about how to hide, how to conceal themselves, um, you know, everything from putting up tarps uh, between buildings, because even on the modern battlefield, you can do little things. We know from history, little things like that, that will actually aid in making it just a little bit harder. And that's, if you take just a little bit of work in times that times a million civilians, you could create, you could slow down back to the beginning of this what the goal was with a rapid seizure of something, barricades. And then I, you know, I talked about small level urban guerrilla tactics that have worked in history from snipers inside of buildings. By sniper, very loosely, I mean somebody in a hidden position shooting. That's all I'm, that's all I'm. And if you did that in a, a very strong concrete building that could take a couple of hits and you just had a plan to, from this window, from behind it, shoot a couple rounds at a disamount of force. Oh, by the way, if you put a, if there's a really good obstacle, somebody's got to get out. If you do that by a thousand, you just turned a street into a thousand bullets raining down on somebody who just showed up on a city block. I mean, these are just little things. And and so back to the new nature of warfare, one interesting, again, about the mistakes, Russia didn't shut anything off. The internet's still up, up and running, the cell networks, um, you know, they, they are doing the right thing on the modern battlefield, no matter who you are, you know, turn off, geolocate, don't emit, things like that. I mean, this is stuff you can open the Ranger handbook and find. Um, but I tweeted it out based on an urban context. It went viral and hopefully it saved lives around the world. So it went viral. So it does say, I actually think that one, not change in, in the character of warfare. It's, it's, it's this new feature of, like we talked about, the, the ability to upload a single engagement. and and upload a single Russian troop, right? This is the concept that we have to be comfortable with. Like 
there's nothing secret about you where you are or what you are there's a thousand eyes all around now with the cell phones and the, everything but you know this nature that from all around the world information can get to people within a combat zone which then they, they could action so i think one of your next questions will be not only did i put this out but did it have an impact or did it change anything have i been sent videos of impressive civilian led work that would make an urban fight better for the defender yes i've i've been sent videos of dump trucks which is stuff i said i mean for some reasons you know we're the one percent of the u.s population right the you the the serving and the veterans and there's crazy basic stuff that people for some reason just don't think of because they've never been in the military the fact that a dump truck parked in the road will will stop a tank you're not going to drive through that um so i have been i have been sent really hundreds and hundreds of videos not saying hey john spencer you helped me but videos of other people going this kind of sounds like what you were talking about or look they're they have a a barrier but they're still walking all around it and i am just loosely talking around the world like if i was there i would stop doing that that's how that that went for me you know not only were we seeing every engagement i mean literally before we got on to this interview i had a live webcam of of downtown kiev that's just up and running i mean you can see the battlefield from your home computer live it's just it's just crazy how much access we have now right well, I, which i'll say to that which is you know, we're in the business of studying war. There are some lessons that we can gather from modern battles that like, yes, that's a lesson. Would that happen in our scenario uh, or when two peers go at it? Right. So don't, that's why I don't like taking, you know, taking it too far with like the second Nagorno Karabakh war, like Azerbaijan was a modern modernized military. Armenia was not, it, you know, so there are some aspects like, like this aspect of this, within the terrain that you're approaching, that there's no EW fight happening. I mean, that's kind of step one, right? You want to prevent enemy C2 and all that stuff. So there is a little bit of like, yes, and um, based on us thinking about the future, we know that it's it's key to take out enemy um, ability to communicate because in things like that, not to say your civilians are not enemy, let's be clear about that. but you know, that that the EW fight is critical, and it does it seems because of the free flow, which is great for us, and I think great for the international community in this war, that it's just free flowing. And like I can watch every strike, I can watch every troop movement, I can record it all and immediately upload it. Not like send a picture and email it back. Like like you said, that that's crazy. Live streaming some of these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I, I know you've recommended to people in the world, maybe not to throw Molotov cocktails out of moving vehicles without much cover nearby, uh, as that, that might splash back into your vehicle as we may or may not have seen on videos. Yeah. Or you just, you just threw a Molotov cocktail at a tank and you hit the side of it and then you tried to drive away real fast. That's going to end really badly. Right, right. Um, you know, John, as as private citizen, John Spencer, you've stated on kind of social media and some of these news channels that Ukraine can win in urban warfare. And so, so how can they do that? What are they going to? What are going to be the roadblocks and challenges to get to that possible? Um, and I say this in quotations: victory, uh, given given all they've suffered. Yeah. So, well, hopefully, when this airs, I'm not. 
proven wrong immediately um, by the fact that they lost. I keep saying that because all war is politics. Ukrainians don't have to defeat any military. They don't have to defeat the enemy's military power. In this situation, not losing is winning because every day that they hold, and I'm an urban guy, so I th- we know defense is, is the stronger form of battle. We know the urban defense is even stronger. So if they hold the urban areas, uh, especially Kharkiv, that every day they do, the enemy, one, can't achieve its strategic objective, and two, may actually lose the war because of multiple reasons, right? This is a defense, the holding terrain. It's not enemy-centric. Uh, it's terrain-based. Every day they hold it, the Russian military struggles with force projection. You know, like you know, Amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. They can't feed, fuel any of their forces, and we've seen that. doesn't mean that they won't, but every day it becomes more and more of a struggle. Every day, get international condemnation of what they're doing in, in all the different countries around the world that are standing up in support or active help in their own way with supplies and things helping today. Um, and we see the enemy's political will breaking down, right? So that's all time-based. It, it makes sense, but this isn't about destroying. They don't have to destroy the Russian military to win. They, they have to hold long enough for the, the political situation to change in their favor. Ergo, it can be the fact that somebody in the international community says enough, whether it's atrocities and you, there's, there's multiple reasons, or he loses so much political will that they decide it's not worth it. Their population protests, the oligarchs in opposition, all of that. It could, let's say, go past that. I still think, as we know from history, the, the resistance they're, they're providing, uh, I think they're willing to play the ultimate price. So this is all military um, strategy as well, is that the, this enemy, as in if you're the Ukraine, the good guys, are willing, they value the terrain, the, the, the capital, enough to play the ultimate price. Uh, and I actually think that. I don't think they do in all their cities. If there's a question of um, operational campaigning, if they need to give up terrain in order to pull back and have a stronger main goal of urban defense, hold the capital. They value that target more than the, the Russians do who you're know, executing the political objectives, but not to that much value. So there's hit plenty of historical examples where they could hold that terrain if they have a defense in depth, if they've barricaded and, and created enough terrain denial to hold off the potential future of massive aerial bombers. I mean, Unlike we have seen, I mean, this is even worse than garage. It could be if, if Russia maintains the political will to can do what it, what it wants to do, like um, it'll be worse than anything we've seen. Well, it could be like, you know, Allah, Aleppo and Rocco uh, without, you know, international stopping it. Uh, Russia could get to the point where he seized it, bombed it. The Ukrainians defense has to include, surviving that and and having enough combat power like the ukrainian military that is still alive and well they survive the onslaught of the the bombings that are going to happen and hold that terrain long enough um they could do that for months in my opinion hey uh john thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about such a critical and pressing issue right now uh we want to get this out as soon as possible for people to understand uh, and see what's going on here so thank you for making the time where where can folks follow you at hey thanks and i really enjoyed it and you, you guys 
I've always been nice to me. I, I really love the podcast, what it's doing for our military and informing them on all these topics. So you can follow me on my, my main medium is Twitter at the, at the moment. I'm at uh, Spencer Guard. So if you just do a, a search for Spencer Guard, you'll find me. All right. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, John Spencer, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.trade.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.